I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Thank you all for coming out tonight. My name is Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. And um, I want to make a huge thanks to, to you, Andy, for um, I think we cornered you into giving this talk months ago when, when Hugh Howey, uh, your friend, was here and, and you wanted to come in. And I was like, oh, that'd be great if you could give a talk. And you agree, like long before this movie thing was really blowing up. So um, I know that it's now become a kink in your schedule, and I appreciate you holding. <laughs> holding true to our little thing. Yes. And, uh, and also Peter Schwartz from our board, who um, you know, is, a, is, is outwardly a futurist, but uh, deep down is a rocket scientist from way back. Um, so whenever we do space things, we have to call on Peter. Um, and uh, we've done a few things differently, which some of you guys noticed, that not only that the tickets sold out in two minutes, um, <laughs> but the, uh, that we also uh, have a patron ticket level. And so I want to thank all of you patron ticket level people. It's, it's, since we can't have the capacity that we wish we could have here, it allows these talks to be somewhat viable, at least uh, uh, reasonably so. Um, and. Um, we have tonight, the Long Now members are listening in on the live stream. Everyone shout out to the live stream, people. Hello! Nice. Um, and, uh, and we were looking for a sponsor for our, our live stream from here. And uh, amazingly, one of our members and former speakers, uh, Edward Bertinsky, who, if you remember, uh, spoke for us and has done amazing photographs of the manufactured world and, and did the movie uh, with his partner, uh, Manufactured Landscapes, is now working on a movie called Anthropocene, uh, which is going to be, he's going to be working on over the next three years. And that production has generously uh, now funding all the live streaming for 2016. And it's a perfect fit, I think, for Long Now. And it will culminate in three years from now when he actually screens the film here in San Francisco. So it'll be a, it'll be a fun thing. And with that, Peter. Thank you, Xander. So uh, it, it really is a serious delight for me to be here. I am a space nerd, right? You know, and is there anybody in this book who has not read, in the room, who's not read The Martian or seen the movie? Anybody brave enough to admit that? And how many, how many friends of Andy are there here? Yeah, we, you, yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a fanboy in this case, absolutely. Uh, and, this is a book and a film that I think is one of the most important in a very long time. Uh, this is the best piece of science fiction that uh, I, th you know, somebody's helped write movies and written books. This is absolutely the best piece of science fiction maybe ever done. Uh, and it is really an honor, a pleasure, and a delight to have you here, Andy. Uh, I think it's the kind of book that, and film that will actually change the world. It will have an impact in lots of ways. We were talking about all the ways it's affecting science education. And I'm actually going to bring up something a little bit later with John Gage during the conversation. So let me tell you what we're going to do. Um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the book and the movie at the beginning, oh, the fan stuff. And then uh, we're actually going to go into what's it actually going to take to get to Mars. Uh, and Andy's going to talk, and I may interrupt him a bit along the way. Uh, you know, I, I'm an astronautical engineer. I can't resist that. Uh, and then we're going to open it up to conversation with everybody, and we'll do all that in roughly an hour. Does that make sense? So 
you know, one of the really interesting aspects of this book is how it came to be. You know, you were a software engineer working, and you began this as a kind of personal project, and it became something much more. Tell us how the book evolved. Well, I mean, when I was a kid or a teenager, I, I always wanted to be a writer. Just my whole life I wanted to be a writer, but I also like eating regular meals and um, <laughs> not sleeping on a park bench. So when the time came to choose a profession, I went into computer programming. But I, so I, so I, but I always wanted to be a writer. So uh, while I was in college getting, working toward my computer science and engineering degree, I also wrote a book. Um, it sucked. But that's okay. You know, I had the same experience, and my mine was stolen, and I was so glad because I never had to look at it again. There you go. Yeah, mine. Uh, this was a four, it was called the Observer. It was dystopian. It was crappy, and it uh, it was before the era of the internet, so there's no digital copies of it out there. No one will ever find it. I hear um, your mother has a. Copy. My mother does have a, have a copy. You, you have done your research, sir. She's holding sir. it over you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She has I'm a copy somewhere. This, yes. I don't know where. I don't. I, if she, she knows not to tell me where it is. But um, so anyway, uh, I went through four years of college and then didn't graduate because I ran out of money because that's what my generation does. So um, I went straight into the computer programming industry because at the time it was if you could if you could stumble into a software company you could get a job. It was like 1994 and there was a tech boom going on. And that was awesome right up until 1999 when, I, uh, when the kind of the bottom fell out of the market and I got laid off uh, from AOL uh, with about 800 of my closest friends while I was, um, while, uh, when they merged with Netscape. That's how long ago that was. Um, and so I, I had enough money from uh, a good severance package and stock options that I, that I realized, hell, now's my chance. I can take a shot at being a writer. I can go a few years without having to work. Um, so uh, I, will, I will write a book. So I wrote a book and then didn't get that one published either because that one also wasn't very good. The difference between these two books was the first one I wrote, it sucked and I knew it. The second one sucked and I didn't know it. Mm. And so I put <laughs> a lot of tough. work. That's in hard. Yeah, yes. that one's hard. And so I tried, to get it, I tried to get it published and after three years I gave up and I went, I went back into the computer industry. But it wasn't like a hang your head Charlie Brown kind of situation. I, I like programming computers and I'm good at it and it's fun. And I like my coworkers mostly. <laughs> no. <laughs> my former coworker, one of them right here. Um, but uh, um, yeah, and so I went back into computer programming and I decided, okay, from now on I'll just write as a hobby. And this newfangled internet thing is up, and I can post my stories online. So I made comic, you know, like web comics and short stories and serials, and I posted them all to my website. I just kind of a, a general dumping ground. Um, I should say my son reads all that stuff. This will impress my wife, who thinks that's all crap. <laughs> okay, there we go. I can't, I can, I, can, I cannot guarantee that it's not all crap, but I, I can tell you that that's what I did. And so I wrote a bunch of stories, and then um, uh, I posted them to my site. And over like the next ten years or so, I built up a, a mailing list of about three thousand people. Which sounds like a lot, but that's ten years, <laughs> you know. So it's not—it's not like some truly impressive accomplishment. It's just perseverance. Just I kept posting content and gathering regular readers, and I would email out to this list whenever I posted something new. Anyway, I was working at three on three serials at the time, right around uh, 2009. One of them was the, uh, one of them was The Martian. Um, one of them was the story of uh, an alien invasion of Earth. And one of them was a story of um, a, a six-year-old mermaid girl living in 19th century New England. So uh, Obviously common themes. Right. So all these things go together. Yeah. 
they're all going to tie together later. No. But uh, yeah, and The Martian was just one of the things that I was writing to my site. And it was a serial. I didn't take it very seriously. It was just sort of a, join us next week for the further adventures of Mark Watney on Mars. You know, it was just like <laughs> something like that. And, but people really liked it. And uh, eventually I finished. And I'm like, OK, I'm done. On to other things. But I started to get email from folks. And people said, like, oh, hey, I love, your, uh, I love The Martian, but I hate reading it in, on a web page because your site sucks. And it did. I mean, it's just ghetto. It's just like white background, blue links, left justified. I mean, it's just like nothing. And they're like, can you make an e-reader version? So I did that. I made an e-reader version, and I posted it on the site. I'm like, there you go. Then I got other email from people saying, oh, hey, I love, the, there's an, uh, you know, I love your story, hate your site. I see there's an e-reader version, um, uh, but I'm not very technically savvy, and I don't know how to download a thing from the internet and put it on my e-reader. Can you just post it to Amazon? OK. So I, I go to Amazon, and I, I figure out how to self-publish. It doesn't require any upfront cost or anything like that, and yet it can do it. Um, and you, you just post your thing up there, and then they hang on to it for like 48 hours to have a human look at it to make sure you're not just posting a bunch of goat porn. But then, <laughs> don't judge. <laughs> but then, but then um, once, it's, once it's out there, oh, you, cannot, you can't give it away. That's, I wanted to give it away for free, but you can't. Amazon actually makes their money from the book sales, the ebook sales. They sell Kindles at a loss. Um, so they won't let you give content away for free. You have to set the price at 99 cents. So I set the price at 99 cents, and it started to sell really well. And it got a lot of really good reviews. And uh, like more people bought it than downloaded it for free from my site, such as the reach of Amazon into the readership market. And what year was this? So this was 2012 is when I self-pubbed it. Um, that was in like September of 2012. By March of 2013, it was like um, number one in sci-fi. It was in the top 100 of all Kindle. And it was selling really well. It had like thousands of ratings. It was like four and a half stars. So it was doing, doing really well. And then I got, I, I didn't know this, but at the time there was a, an editor at Random House named Julian Pavia who was recommended the book. And he's like, nah, I don't know if I want to read this or if it's just engineering porn. And then he was talking to a colleague of his named David Fugate, who's a literary agent. And he's like, ah, I was thinking about reading this, I don't know. And David's like, well, I can read it and give you my opinion. And he's like, sure. So David read it, and then he's like, I like it. And he came to me and said, do you need an agent? Do you need a literary agent? So after three years earlier in life of not even being able to get responses from literary agents, I have one knocking at my door. So I go online to make sure he's like a real person. And then, <laughs> and then I'm like, Sure, uh, you can be my agent. And he turns around and goes, he's like, great, Julian, how much are you going to pay us for this book? <laughs> so, so, then I, so they started negotiating a print deal. Then I got this random query directly from Fox. Uh, 20th Century Fox said, like, hey, uh, we're interested in the uh, film option for uh, The Martian. I'm like, talk to my agent. And so my agent said, oh, well, I'm going to farm this out to a film agent. So film agents are specialists in, in right. film contracts. So these two negotiations are going on at the same time. And so ultimately, the print deal and the film deal came together four days apart. Wow. So that was an eventful week for me. At that, <laughs> at that time, by the way, I'm still a computer programmer. So I'm in my cubicle fixing bugs, then walking off to take a call on my movie deal, then back to the cubicle. To fix <laughs> So it was, it was really very strange. There's a movie in this itself. Yeah, right? a movie in this. Yeah, and then uh, pretty much everyone knows the rest. They did. They did make the movie. You know, the book got on the New York Times bestseller list. They made the movie. It was number one. It's number one right now. Right. Um, which is, yay! Yeah. So, 
One piece of the story, though, that you didn't mention is the engagement with your readers about the science. Oh, sure. Um, uh, when when I was writing it, you know, so my I I never imagined this would have mainstream appeal because I was writing it for a bunch of dorks. I mean, my 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 readers are people are people like well you, and and I, I imagined that it would just be interesting to hardcore science geeks. That I, I I that's why there's so much detailed math and stuff because I knew they'd check, because that's what they're like. <laughs> but and 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 it was cool because as I posted chapter by chapter, it took me three years to write the book, and I posted a chapter every month or two. Um, in, if, I, if there were any math errors, chemistry errors, physics errors, electronics, anything wrong, they would tell me. And so I, I got told many times, it's like, nope, you got this chemistry wrong, here's how it would work. Oh, you got this, you got this thing wrong, here's, here's the realities of the situation. So it was like I had 3,000 fact checkers, so it was really cool. I, look, I think this is fact, this is the intelligence of the community is greater than any one of us, and the ability to engage with that. I, I, as far as I know, no other book has done it quite this way. I don't know, yeah. You know, and I, you know, as a science geek myself who read it and with you know every chapter with delight I was telling my wife as we were going along wow you should see this and how he worked this problem out and so on as someone who actually had to solve problems like that on Apollo you know it was a real delight to see that kind of process at work of that engagement that you went through in both the writing and in the communication of it cool. the movie so how did you feel about the movie oh I loved it I think it, it's a great adaptation it's a really true uh, it's really true to the novel, which is rarer in movies. Usually there's, usually there's just wild liberties taken. This is just a very faithful adaptation. They had to take some stuff out. They had to sure. take a bunch of subplots out. But if they hadn't, it'd be like a six-hour movie. So, I mean, you have to, they have to trim stuff out. But the things they removed are the things that, if they'd left it up to me, I would remove. Um, just to be That's clear. That's rare. Yeah. I mean, well, no, that I would remove, right. you know, to trim it down. I, um, um, but people often ask, oh, what was your involvement in the movie? Well, my, my only job on the film was to cash the check. Um, but, uh, yeah, do. it's basically the contract, which was 34 pages long and needed to be notarized and signed in four places, basically boiled down to, we'll give you this much money for the movie rights, you get to attend the premiere. That is, that is what happens to writers in Hollywood. Yeah, that yep. is the, the world. I, but, having worked on a bunch of yeah. films, I know. But they chose to involve me, which was really nice. Drew Goddard, who wrote the screenplay, he was on the phone to me almost every day when he was writing it, uh, getting my feedback. And then uh, once they started filming, um, I would get these questions filtered down from Ridley that were interesting because I was like, ooh, I like the questions he's asking. Like, it's like, hey, can we show Mark pouring hydrazine from one container to another out on the surface of Mars? And I'm like, no, the pressure of Mars is so low that the hydrazine would just boil off. And he's like, all right, then we won't do that. I'm like, oh, that's I affected really that. <laughs> but that's very rare, and, yeah. you know, that, that both to be involved in the, the actual production and to have the director asking you questions like that. And it's, yeah. I think it's part of why it does sing on the screen, I must say. It feels that way. It, it, I think that it's a great adaptation. And, and Damon absolutely nailed the character of Watney. I mean, he's just exactly the way I imagined Is it? I, that, me too. I just had yeah, that feeling. It's just exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's perfect. Well, you know, Stuart and I had the experience of helping with another novel of another friend, uh, Daniel Suarez, and getting it published through a similar kind of story. Damon. And then working on the Damon, for those Damon. of you who don't remember. And, and we worked on the movie script, and it sucked. <laughs> because it was really, you couldn't actually translate it well to the it's screen. It's a very complicated, complicated novel. Complicated story. Yeah. That's why I'm so uh, admiring of how it actually turned out, the translation from the book to the screen. Okay, enough for the fanboy stuff.
All right. Uh, we'll get, well, there'll be more of that when they start yeah, asking get, questions. You can, get, you can ask questions about <laughs> yeah. that later if, if there are important questions you <laughs> want to address, uh, uh, have Andy address. But now let's get down to the future, the future. getting to Mars. All right. Okay? So why don't you start us on our voyage? How are we going to get there? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, so first thing you need to understand is that when I wrote The Martian, the Ares mission profile, as is depicted in the book, I, I did that specifically to be entertaining, not necessarily to be accurate. Um, I mean, I, tried, I, I wanted scientific accuracy as much as possible, but I also did things to tug at your nostalgia heartstrings and make it feel kind of like the Apollo era and, and to give you that, that, that kind of feeling of, yeah, yeah, kick ass. In reality, I think the first manned mission to Mars is going to be a large international effort. It's going to be organizationally similar to the International Space Station. It's not just going to be the NASA show. And I think it'll probably be NASA, ESA, Roscosmos, um, probably the Indian Chinese. Space Agency by then, well, uh, JAXA. And also, I would love for it to include the Chinese. We cooperated with the Soviets in space in the middle of the Cold War. Surely we can cooperate exactly. with the Chinese now. I mean, so I, I don't know why that distinction exists still. Mao is but, still alive, don't you know? <laughs> little red book. Um, so, but the, the technical challenges of getting to Mars are, are very significant. Mars, everybody knows Mars is far away, but I don't, a lot of people don't really understand the, the, the significance of the distance. If you were on a football field, if you were at one goalpost and Mars were at the other goalpost, the moon would be uh, about three or four centimeters in front of you. Like, that, that is the scale. And, and we know it's hard to get to the moon, right? So now, scale that up. <laughs> um, First thing you need to deal with is that the mental health of the crew requires a large ship. You can't just send six people to Mars in a van. You know, you, you can't just expect people to sit around for months in a tiny enclosed space. They're going to need a large internal area where they can move around, get away from each other, do stuff. Also, it just takes a lot of ship to support humans for such a length of time. So let's assume that our Mars transfer craft is going to be about the same mass as the International Space Station. Okay. That's sort of what you showed in the film. It, yeah, it has a feel of that. Hermes is a big heavy ship that goes back, that you know, they use to get to Mars and back to Earth. It never lands. It, it never, it ne it, it, in the book version, it actually does arrow breaking at both Mars and Earth to, to save on reactant mass, but, but it never lands. They have, as part of the ship, they have the MDV, Mars Descent Vehicle. So it goes to Mars, it comes, goes into Mars orbit, then the MDV breaks off and lands. And then on the surface waiting for them is the MAV, Mars Ascent Vehicle, which uh, spent the last several months making fuel out of the Martian, um, out of the Martian atmosphere. And then that, its only job is to get them back up to the main ship, and then the main ship takes them home. So you don't need to land this behemoth on the ground. But let's say that your ship plus your MDV weighs about the same as the International Space Station. Okay, to get to Mars, uh, even, uh, through a traditional chemical propellant, uh, which is you just you burn a big old rocket and go there. The best time to do that, there is a specific launch window called a home and transfer window. That is the lowest amount of energy necessary to get to Mars from Earth. And that requires uh, 5.7 kilometers a second of total delta V. In other words, you have to change the velocity of your ship a total of 5,700 meters per second. Um, so that includes like fr from low Earth orbit, to get to uh, low Mars orbit. So you have to accelerate to get to on transfer orbit, then you have to accelerate again to fall into Mars's orbit. Okay, 
To get that with um, the best chemical propellant we have, which turns out to just be hydrogen and oxygen, burn it. Um, that is, that is the, very, that's the best um, specific impulse, which basically is a measure of how efficient fuel is at changing the velocity of a ship. To get that, you would need to have almost 10 times the mass of the ship in fuel. So that means uh, the International Space Station, which weighs 385,000 kilograms, would need about 3 million kilograms of fuel. All right, so let's remember that. Now, let's talk about how much it costs to put things into orbit. All right, let's say they use the SLS, the, the uh, Space Launch System, which is going to cost $20 billion, and it'll be capable of putting 150,000 kilograms into orbit. How much will it cost to put 3 million kilograms <laughs> into orbit? Well, just to put the ISS into orbit would cost, this is ignoring all of the other costs, just putting the mass of the ship itself, not the fuel, just the mass of the ship itself into orbit is about $51 billion. Putting the mass of all the fuel into orbit and the ship gets you up to about $500 billion. I mean, we could have a war with that much money. Half a war, the way we do it. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we could have a good-sized war. I mean, with that much money, we don't want to be wasting it on that. So that is really bad. Um, now, the next thing to consider is, OK, what about the better price to LEL? Let's talk about the, uh, the Falcon 9, which is the cheapest way the SpaceX Falcon 9 is currently the cheapest way to get stuff into orbit. There's more stuff coming in the future, but Falcon 9 is, is the cheapest right now. Uh, it ends up costing about 4100 bucks per kilogram uh, to get things into LEO, which means putting the station into orbit would cost about $1.5 billion. So $15 billion to put it plus the fuel for Mars thing. Okay, that's getting a bit more reasonable. Um, with the Falcon Heavy, it drops down to about half of that. The Falcon Heavy has not been tested yet, but they estimate that it's going to be about half the price. So it's going down and down, but this is still very expensive. The problem is, doing this home and transfer ellipse means you're on your way to Mars, and that's it. You are going to Mars, by God, and if something goes wrong, well, you better fix it or you're going to die. You have no abort option. You have nothing. You're going to Mars, and that's it. And then um, if you have a problem on Mars, well, tough shit, because you're going to be on Mars for about 20 months before the home and transfer ellipse window to go home happens. And so you are absolutely stuck there, which is why I and a lot of other people think that traditional chemical propulsion is not the way to go, that the solution is ion engines. What ion engines do is they take highly, char highly charged particles, well, first they charge them, and then they spit them out the back of the ship really, really fast. So they use argon, usually, and you're spewing argon out, out, out the back of the ship. You need a lot of energy to do this, but you don't need anywhere near as much reactant mass as the oxygen and hydrogen fuel. So you end up only needing 1.5 times your ship's mass of argon. So instead of having 3 million kilograms of fuel, you're going to have about 150, or, sorry, you're going to have about 500,000 kilograms of, of mass of argon, that, and you're going to need a reactor to power it, because ain't no way you're getting that much power out of, uh, out of sales, out of, um, um, sorry, solar cells. So that means you need a nuclear reactor aboard your ship. That means you need to deal with the political issues of convincing people that it's okay to put a nuclear reactor on your spaceship and orbit around Earth. Or you could be the Russians and not care. Or you could be the Russians and not care. <laughs> Which but is we, great. we have put nuclear power plants in space we before. We have. We have indeed. But it's, uh, we've we, we both done it. We, we, we've done it and the Soviets did it. 
Um, okay, so let's say you do that. that and that, we've also tested the ion engine in space. Wait, yes, the ion engine, this is not speculative technology. These are real things. They are used on real probes. I think the, uh, the Dawn. Um, Dawn. Dawn used it. So th this, is, this is real technology. This isn't just made up stuff. It would need to be scaled way up, oh. but it's real. Now that I approve. He approves. Okay, I approve. It's the okay. right answer. He's a, we, we have one vote for ion engines. All right. Now that, oh, we have one, we have, yeah, now they're even, yep. All right, next thing you need to deal with is, uh, it, oh, by the way, um, within the context of the book, I calculated all the orbital trajectories. I, I gave uh, Hermes uh, the ion engines that capable of accelerating at two millimeters per second per second, which is about this fast. But for a long time. But notice it's going faster now. And you do that for months and months and months, you're hauling ass. And so what ultimately happens is um, you can get to Mars uh, under the trajectory I calculated in 124 days. The Holman transfer lips takes about 254 days. So in other words, um, doing ion engines takes four months, Holman transfer lips takes eight. So you get to Mars faster. Also, you can abort. You can go, shit and go back home, because you're constantly accelerating. So you turn around. Well, it's not as simple as turn around, and you probably have to go around the sun, and there's all sorts of complicated crap. But you're not locked into this, into this mode. And you can abort early when you're at Mars. And you don't need to stay on Mars for 20 months. You can stay there for 31 souls or whatever your desired mission duration length is. It gives you so many abort options. It's so much safer. What's a soul? A soul is one Martian day, the time it takes Mars to rotate once on its axis, which by cosmic coincidence happens to be very, very close to Earth's day length. Uh, it, a, a soul on Mars is, is 24 hours and 39 minutes. So it's just a little cool? bit longer. Yeah. Whereas meanwhile, a soul on Venus is about like 214 days. So, you know, planet's going to planet. So the next thing you need to deal with is the long-term effects of zero-g. Now, weightlessness is bad for the human body. We've spent a couple of billion years evolving in an environment that has 1G of acceleration downward at all times, and our bodies rely on that for a number of things. Long-term effects of zero-G include uh, bone degradation, osteoporosis, muscle degeneration, weakness of the heart, macular degeneration of the eyes, which can eventually lead to blindness, and they're just now discovering immune response issues. It screws with the immune system in some way that they're not really sure they understand. The current way to deal with it and the way they experiment with it, uh, right now Scott Kelly is up on ISS uh, doing a full year in space and to test him versus his uh, twin, Mark Kelly, who's on the ground, and they, so they can compare the two. And um, they just have him doing a, a rigid exercise program. Now, any, any doctor can tell you that that exercise program uh, reduces but does not eliminate the bone uh, loss issue, reduces but does not eliminate muscle weakness issues, keeps your heart pretty healthy, actually. You can pretty much completely cancel the problems with your heart, but it doesn't do anything against the macular degeneration in your eyes. Spending long periods of time in zero-G does permanent damage to your eyes. How important is your vision to you? Probably pretty important. And so uh, I believe strongly, and many disagree, that the best way to solve all this is not to let them be in zero-G, but make a ship that spins so they have centripetal force serving as gravity. So now their bodies are, are uh, be having the same force exerted on them as they would on Earth, or maybe you just have it be one Martian gravity, which is about 0.4 of Earth's gravity. 
And that takes care of all the problems. They don't need to spend you know, a third of their day dealing with exercise. They can do other experiments on the trip. They don't need to lose their vision. They don't have any of these problems. That does mean, however, you need to make a spaceship that is capable of spinning and maintaining that force constantly for this entire time. That's a lot of force. Fortunately, we have about 10,000 years of experience in how to build things that don't fall down in one G of force. It's called architecture. Okay, we've worked this out. So, that's the next thing, long-term effects of zero G. So we've got an ion drive, a spinning a part spinning, of the ship. A spinning, uh, it's called a spinny thingy is spinning the thingy. technical The spinning term. thingy, yeah. okay. Okay, now on to the very biggest problem, a problem that no one has solved, radiation. Radiation in space is a big problem. Here on Earth, we're protected from radiation by um, our magnetosphere, which deflects most of the radiation away from the planet, and what little does get through gets blocked by our relatively thick atmosphere. On the way to Mars, you have neither of those protect. When you're in low Earth orbit, you're still protected by the magnetosphere. Our astronauts on ISS are safe within Earth's magnetic shield. But once you leave Earth, leave Earth orbit, you're on your own. And there's two kinds of radiation you need to deal with. One of them is solar radiation, which are uh, rapidly moving particles coming off of the sun because it spews a lot of crap out. The other thing is called GCRs, which stands for galactic cosmic rays, which is a horrible misnomer because they're not cosmic rays, they're, highly they're um, high velocity particles traveling at, at relativistic speeds. They're going very, very fast. Earth doesn't have this problem, it just gets hit by it, they get knocked out of the way or absorbed in the atmosphere. If you're out in space, you're gonna get bombarded with this stuff and you're going to get, if you were to go to Mars, over the course of your trip to Mars, your stay on Mars, and then your return to Earth, you would get many, many lifetimes worth of your safe dosage of radiation during that time. You absolutely would get cancer. I mean, you can virtually guarantee it. Now, one rather, in my opinion, reckless idea is that they've had the idea of saying like, well, let's just send old people. <laughs> <laughs> the idea being... <laughs> how, how many over 65 would yeah. go, right? Yeah, okay. That, that is an idea. They said, let's, let's, send, let's make 50 the minimum age because the idea is that like getting that much radiation dramatically increases the odds that you're gonna get cancer in 40 or 50 years, but the 50-year-olds are like, Bring it, yeah. right. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm in, I'm so in. So that's, that's, one, that's one option. Uh, I think that's not a good option. Uh. I, don't, I don't think, so you get cancer, is a good solution. I think a better solution, uh, unfortunately, is that you, we need to have some sort of radiation shielding. Problem is, there, there is, uh, unlike my book, which has magical, thin, flexible, total radiation shielding, there's no such thing like that in real life. To, to, block the, to block the radiation in space, just out, out in inter, interplanetary space, you would need two centimeters of lead, or 10 centimeters of water, or a full meter of rock. So that starts to make your ship pretty heavy. And they don't have a good solution for that. One possible solution they've, they've thought of is say like, okay, well the crew's gonna need a water supply, let's store it in the hull and we'll have like 10 centimeters of water in the hull. And then we'll have, uh, as they generate sewage, they will be, you know, you're gonna wanna keep those things separate, but you'll ultimately replace your water supply with a protective layer of shit, and you'll be safe from radiation because of that. Problem is that's like way more water than you would normally need to send on a mission, even of that duration. And so it's just mass, mass, mass. And there isn't really a good solution to this yet. So it's, what would be awesome is if, if material scientists could find 
a way to make a lighter radiation shielding. And there has been some success in that area. Um, alternating strips of like plastic and metal have proven to be more effective than the plastic or the metal on their own because of um, things I won't pretend to understand. But that, that is a serious issue. I, I think you do go with the, uh, with the ice. You, I, I, I think the ice is the, the, ice. the solution. Yeah, you, you, enca you encapsulate the, the vehicle in a big ball of ice, basically. You can do that. Um, the other thing is if you, if you build your transfer ship out of a near-Earth asteroid, right? The idea is you just find something that's like a big rock and then build your, you know, your crew habitat inside of it and then move the whole rock. Of course, that means you got to move the rock. Rock, that's a lot of mass. Yeah, but at least you don't have to move the rock up from Earth, Earth right. which is where the real expense comes in. Well, you in. collect your ice on the moon. Well. Then you only have to lift it up off of the moon. moon. Well, it's also pretty easy to, I mean, you can also find rocks on the moon here right. and there. So. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Um, radiation is a serious issue. It's actually a bigger problem during the transit to Mars than it is on the planet itself. Now, Mars has practically no magnetic field, so it's not protecting you from radiation. And it has a really, really thin atmosphere, so that's also not protecting you from radiation. But when you're on Mars, half of the universe is on the other side of Mars from you, and that protects you from radiation. There's nothing like a few thousand kilograms of planet to stop a galactic particle. So you actually get about half the dose while you're on the surface of Mars, because Mars itself protects you. Now, the next thing is, uh, just a side note, the MAV, making your own fuel. Well, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's a thing called the Sabatier reaction that takes, if you have carbon dioxide and hydrogen, you can put them together to make methane and water and energy. Okay, all of these things are in ridiculously huge abundance on Mars. The atmosphere is 96% carbon dioxide, so you have a virtually infinite supply of that. The ground, thanks to curiosity. Okay, so in my book, Mark has to do all sorts of crazy stuff to make water. He has to go, he takes hydrazine, he reduces it, he you know, liberates the hydrogen, then he burns the hydrogen, he blows himself up a little bit, and then he gets hurt, and it's all this stuff like that. So after I wrote the book, and it was already in print, curiosity landed on Mars, went, scoop, there's a shitload of water in the soil. <laughs> So all he really needed to do was bring dirt inside and heat it up. Turns out, for every cubic meter of Martian soil, there's 35 liters of water. It's a huge amount of water available all over the surface of Mars. So that gets you water, which is made of hydrogen and oxygen. So you electrolyze that, and you get the hydrogen. Now you've got the carbon dioxide. You've got energy, either from a solar cell or from a, an RTG or some other energy source. So you can perform the Sabatier reaction. And the end result is you get a bunch of methane and water, which you can then take apart to refeed the reaction. But the point is, you end up with methane, which is CH4 and a bunch of elemental oxygen because you've been uh, electrolyzing the water. Methane and oxygen, that's rocket fuel. There was a project at NASA called Morpheus where they tested this, where they tested a, a controlled launch and uh, a controlled rocket engine that, that burns methane and oxygen and it worked great. Methane is just natural gas. It's basically a natural gas rocket. Yep, it's a natural and, and gas rocket. And this discovery of water is actually quite significant. It's and huge. It, it changes the game in a big it way. It completely changes the game because it, it it is now possible to make as much rocket fuel as you want on the surface of Mars. People often, miss, people often mistake what the significance of water on Mars are. People are like, oh, there's water. That means we can go there and drink. It's like, you are already going to drink, all right? You know, you can just send, a, you can send like you know, 20 kilograms of water per person to Mars, and you can have a water reclamation system that deals with it. What, water to drink is not the issue. Hydrogen is the issue, and hydrogen allows you to make rocket fuel. So that's the cool thing. So. 
uh, you're at, you, you, the, the kind of solution to all of this is you make a ship in orbit. Then you use ion propulsion to send it to Mars. Then you have an MDV that lands. You have an MAV that has spent the last few months using stuff on Mars to make rocket fuel. You do your surface mission, you get back in the MAV, you go back up to your ship, use its ion engines to come home, and you're set. That's how, you, that's, the, that's how we do our first manned mission to Mars. Now the question is, why send people to Mars at all? Good question. Why send people to Mars at all? I'm glad you asked. Yes, <laughs> the short answer is, you shouldn't. Not right now. Because the problem is, we have no need to send people to Mars if your objective is gathering science. Right now, yes, an astronaut would be way the hell more efficient and more effective than any robot we send. Curiosity can move a few meters a day. An astronaut in an EVA suit could run all over the place. An astronaut can glance this way and that and figure out, oh, that's the rock I want to go look at. That one I don't. If you just want science, an astronaut's way better than a robot right now. But if you give me $51 billion, I bet you I can make you a robot that's as effective as an astronaut. Okay? And nobody dies if I fuck up. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you can, it, it becomes cheaper to send. You don't need to bring it back. And radiation is less. And you don't issue. care about radiation. You can make it radiation shield or just immune to radiation. So if you're just attempting to gather information about Mars, you shouldn't be considering sending people there. The reason you send people to Mars is to figure out how to send people to Mars. Because in the long term, especially for an organization like the Long Now, you're going to want to back up the human race by putting some of them on another planet. And as long as we're all on one planet, we have a non-trivial chance of extinction. It could be a war, it could be a disease, it could be an astronomical event, but if we're on two planets, that drops down to virtually zero. 25 years as a software engineer has taught me the importance of backing up your data. <laughs> so the reason to send people to Mars is to figure out how to send people to Mars and so that we can eventually colonize it. Now, the, the one remaining obvious question. Well, before you go to the next one. Okay. So last week, I actually was on a panel in London, or two weeks ago, with Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal of Britain, uh, who holds one of the great jobs. He holds the Isaac Newton Chair at Cambridge. I mean, it's a great mm. title, right? Mm. Uh, so I asked, so we debated this question. He believes it's all robots, right? We don't really need to send people, that mm -hmm. the robots are going to get smart enough, fast enough, and even if they're, maybe they're uh, human, uh, controlled robots that oh, are really, absolutely. you know, basically Waldos mm -hmm. of one sort or another. But inevitably, his view is that the, uh, that it's a very long time before we ever really need humans again in space. That the manned era is over. My answer to him was, it's not about backup, though it is that. It's about basically the human spirit. Mm. It's a base. You know, this is we want to go out into the galaxy. We want to go into the universe. We have always you know, spread ourselves around the planet, and given the opportunity and the technology, we want to go into space. And we will find a way, it's why Branson's going, it's why Eli, Elon Musk is going, and so on. The practical consequences, I think, are quite secondary to that real drive to explore and to venture outwards. I think you're right. And, um, but before we can even consider colonizing a planet, we need to know how to make humans live on it. And also, uh, the economics of it need to work out. It needs to be something that you, you can emigrate to Mars by, by spending your life savings to do it. Right now, you can't do that. Right. So um, the, uh, the, the, the purpose of putting humans on Mars is to find out if, you know, how to put humans on Mars. Now, the next question, the last bit I was going to say was, why not colonize the moon? 
it's so much closer, it's so much easier, it's quick to get to, it can be somewhat Earth dependent while you're initially setting up the colony, unlike a colony on Mars, which has to be completely self-sufficient. You could work your way slowly to self-sufficiency, it's cheaper. Uh, you, can, you can go like, crap, this guy uh, needs medical attention, it takes him like four days to get back to Earth, you know, that's, that's what it took an Apollo capsule, right? So why, why colonize Mars and not Earth? Here's so the answer. Because Mars has everything necessary for life to keep getting bigger. Um, if you imagine you've got humans, you have food, you're generating your own food in this eventual colony. You need to have a biosphere. There's a certain biomass, and that does not increase unless you're gathering elements from outside the system. In other words, if you had a lunar colony and you had 1,000 people on it and enough crops to support 1,000 people and everything's run perfectly, you'd have stability. But how do you get bigger? How do you grow another, how do you grow another field of wheat? Fine, you make another dome out of like local materials. There's plenty of aluminum and stuff like that. There's plenty of oxygen on the moon, whatever. You make another dome. Where do you get the carbon that ultimately makes that new field of wheat? There's no carbon on the moon, or not enough. Not enough to matter. Where do you get the nitrogen, which is also critical? There's none of that. And where do you get the hydrogen? There's little of that. There's water on the moon, but it would be like oil on Earth. It's rare and difficult, and you'd have to go, you'd have to go through hardship and, and difficulty to go get it. And so out of the four critical elements of life, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, there's only one of them in abundance on the moon, and that's oxygen. And there's tons of oxygen caught up in the oxidized materials on the moon. Mars has all four of those in virtually infinite supply. The atmosphere is carbon dioxide, so that's two of them. 2% of the atmosphere is nitrogen, and if, the, and if that several billion tons isn't enough, there are nitrates already in the soil. And then um, finally, uh, so, so H, hydrogen, there's water. There's tons and tons of water. So that chone, the four things that you need for life are all over Mars. So if you had a Mars uh, colony and a, Mar and, a, and a biosphere inside your little Mars base, you could make a new dome and say like, well, we need, we need to add more carbon dioxide to the system to, so that this new wheat field can breathe. Get some carbon dioxide. We need to add water to the system for this increased biomass. Get some water. We need more nitrates. Get some nitrogen. Everything's right there on Mars. So that's why you colonize Mars and not the moon. So let, just to, to finish up before we throw it open for questions. So, You've thought really pretty thoroughly about this. You thought about it in bit. elements in, in, in the book. Uh, there's a lot of debate about, okay, should we, can we, what will cost, how to organize, and so on. Let's assume the politics are all taken care of for a moment. And thinking about both the financial and technical challenges in actually pulling off what you've said, if we were starting today, when do you think realistically it would be plausible to actually put an expedition on the moon, not yet a colony? Just Pretty close to what was in the book and close to the film. On Mars? On Mars. Did I say the moon? I meant Mars, sorry. Um, Thank you. I, I wildly guess around 2050. NASA says they, that NASA has it in mind to get people, uh, you know, like boots on Mars around 2035. I have no doubt that they could, given enough funding. I just don't think that much funding is realistic. So I'm going to guess around 2050. Also, I think Mars missions aren't going to look the way we think they are. I think the first manned mission to Mars is really going to be more like Apollo 10. I think you're going to see we're going to litter Mars with robots, and then we're going to send people to live in orbit around Mars. And so now we have a zero latency connection between human brains and robots on the surface. So they can remote control them like RC cars and just do, 
okay, I'm gonna go over there. Oh, that rock's cool, I'm gonna go over there. As opposed to this four to 20 minute communication latency we have with our probes right now. Because that's what's really slowing things down. The lack of the human brain on scene. But just putting humans in orbit around Mars is a hell of a lot easier than landing them on the getting surface and getting up, them back yeah. up. So I, I, I roughly agree with your time frame. I think that is plausible given both the, the financial and kind of political issues of actually putting together that. I don't see any inherently technologically insuperable problems. Like you, I think the radiation issue That's is the, the hardest issue. one. Yeah. And it's something we didn't know at the beginning of the space age, really, that that would be the biggest barrier. Here's a fun fact. Um, uh, the astronauts, you, you may be wondering, well, wait, what about, the, uh, what about the Apollo astronauts who we sent outside of Earth's atmosphere? They got blasted with radiation. That's just how it was. Yeah. But they, were, they weren't out for very long. They were out for like 11 days or something like that. And during that time, they got uh, about 100 x-rays worth of radiation, about the same as getting 100 x-rays. And um, almost all of them developed cataracts, which is um, one, of the, one of the first, uh, one of the, your, your eyes are very sensitive to radiation. And so you get cataracts if you get uh, exposed to radiation. And here's another fun thing. Between Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, during that six-month window, there was a huge solar radiation event. And if there had been an Apollo mission in progress at the time, they almost certainly would have died. Or it's aborted just, very fast. They or would, aborted very quickly, yeah. if they could have. Yeah. But they probably wouldn't have been able to, because it was day, right. it, it would, it was, you know, it was day on the near side of the moon, yeah. so they would have been exposed to the sunlight. So uh, they, it was just luck that they just happened to not be doing a mission at the time. Yeah, there were other elements of luck that people didn't realize that, yeah. that didn't happen that almost did. Almost, yeah. almost every Apollo mission had some near, yeah. near catastrophe. Well, they, when they landed on 11, they had like two and a half seconds left of fuel. Well, yeah, and their computer kept crashing. Yeah, exactly. It was all manual. Anyway, okay. So now uh, we're... Oh, before we actually get into the questions, one of the things that happened subsequently to the book coming out, and quite recently, good friend over here, John Gage, uh, formerly of Sun Microsystems, one of the earliest people and a friend of many of ours, uh, got so motivated by the book that he decided this is worthy of an educational curriculum. Decompose the book. Would you flash your, your, your thing up here? I got, I got it up here. Okay. <laughs> page after page of every problem solution, how to take this book and turn it into one of the great curricula that students can learn science from. <laughs> So I will make everybody share. You just have to tell me how to get. How should we do this? But I, my my email is John Gage Gmail. But I now am going to make John Gage at Gmail. <laughs> Write to John, and you will get this doc. Send pictures. Fun pictures. Yeah. <laughs> you know cat, I mean. Send him a lot of cat pictures. Anyway. But yeah, the point is, meant. there is a great opportunity to expand this, and there's going to be a scholastic version of the book uh, free of shit and fuck and words like that. So uh, having said that, right. uh, we now have the convergent pieces to inspire science as well. Okay, questions, comments from the floor. Right over here. Uh, we'd like to have you use a mic if you don't mind because we want to have it for the... Uh, uh, for our viewers at for home. For the viewers at home. Uh, so one of the things... So, so the book is... Uh, widely acclaimed for being a, a science fiction book about science. Um, one of the things I think is interesting is it's not just about science, but it's also about engineering. It's about um, problem solving. And so I was wondering, was that, uh, and 
I think that's both one of the things that makes a lot of, uh, frankly, nerds and engineers like it. Um, it's one thing. It's one of the things that adds adds a lot of attention to the book. But I also think it's one of the things that make it makes it great. Um, was that deliberate on your part, or you just you were just an engineer doing your engineer thing and you solved problems? Yeah, the latter. I, I'm just uh, I, I like problem solving and I like stories related to problem solving, um, and uh, so that's just kind of how it came out. Mike, right here. Um, so there's a story called The Martian Way by Isaac Asimov, where you which you've not read. I, I, I maybe have. Tell me okay. about it. Anyway, uh, he talks about like once people with humans with their capacity to, um, to adapt, once you are used to Mars and confined spaces and whatnot, you are able to survive a lot longer in a lot more confined spaces and, and oh. with this thing. Okay. Um, you, did you think about people adapting to or, or like him, him adapting? Uh, Adapting to the environment. You're talking about for uh, colonization, or you're talking about in the book? In the book. Oh, in the book. Well, I think Asimov was talking about people who grew up in the in that environment, and in the book, it's just a, a manned mission. So these people all grew up on Earth, so it Mike. wouldn't affect them. Over here. So. Oh, uh, we got a question from what, the web. Yeah, from, yes. So, so thanks everybody listening on the live stream. This is a question from the the folks out there. Um, can you expand a little bit more on the architecture? that's required for a spinning ship, and would it be able to generate 1G continuously? Uh, yes. Um, so a spinning ship is um, one of the main concepts is you don't need to make a giant, like, like wheel in space. Arthur C. Wheel. Clay. Yeah, you don't need to make one of those giant things hugely massive. Or also, like, the way Hermes is presented in the movie is a lot of mass. All you would need would be two segments of the ship that are approximately equal mass connected by a long cable. And then you, what's that? Bolo. It's a bolo, yeah. It's a space bolo. And it's just spinning. <laughs> and you could, you could have it be 100 meters apart. It's just a, a cable. You, you're going to want to make sure that cable doesn't break. But, and then you start it spinning. And then that will provide centripetal force in the same way that you can you know, take a bucket full of water and do this, and the water won't come out on top of you if you do it fast enough. And it would maintain whatever gravity you wanted. Uh, probably the best idea would be um, to have it provide 0.4 Gs of gravity during the astronaut's trip to Mars so that they are used to that gravity and comfortable with it by the time they get there. And then for the trip back, they start at 0.4 Gs and then very slowly increase it during the many month trip back to 1 G so that they're comfortable once they're back on Earth. So we've got a question here, here, and then we'll take you back there. Okay. Um, so SpaceX has announced their plans for the MCT. Um, for the what? For the Mars Colonial Transport. Um, and that is, it seems kind of, can you hear? Is the microphone working? Yeah, okay. Um, so the SpaceX MCT seems pretty different from the, the suggestions that you made. So they're talking about using rocket fuel engines, talking about manned missions to Mars by mid-2020s. Um, have you spent much time thinking about kind of the differences in design or how SpaceX is tackling the problem differently than what you've suggested? Um, I haven't looked into the uh, the MCT at all. I'm uh, for SpaceX. MCT, Mars, Mars Colonial, Colonial Transport. Transport. Thank you. Yeah, um, I haven't looked into that at all. Uh, with SpaceX, I'm much more interested in um, their their actual like shorter term plans, not the not the highly speculative stuff. So I'm much more impressed by uh, the Falcon Heavy. That's what I'm really waiting for. I honestly believe that the true the, the, the true path forward for um, space travel and interplanetary travel is by driving down the cost to LEO. If you can drive the price down. LEO. Low Earth orbit. Thank you. Yes, driving down the price to low Earth orbit 
if you can get the price down much further than it is right now, then it, everything starts to become cost effective. If it only costs, only, if it only costs like $10 billion to do a manned mission to Mars, we'd do it, absolutely. The government would be, yeah, sure, yeah, why not? But it doesn't cost $10 billion, it costs a lot more. And the reason for that, it, the vast majority of the money spent is getting things from Earth's surface into low Earth orbit. Now, the reason for that is because, well, imagine how expensive it would be to fly from New York to London if you threw the plane away after you flew. <laughs> because that's what we do right now. So, you know, that, that's why SpaceX is working on, you know, reusable rockets. Everybody's working on reusable rockets, not just like space shuttle style where 90% of the mass gets thrown away and it's a big mess. It's like they want to land the rocket back up and they haven't succeeded in that, but it's awesome that they're trying. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think the challenge of getting there by 20 or 2020, 2025, 2030 is uh, actually pretty unrealistic. Like you, I think the, the challenge to low Earth orbit is exactly right, and that they have basically got that right. So I, right. I, I well, eventually, you know, no, Elon, you, you know Elon's great quote, I, I hope to die on Mars, but not on impact. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Right. You know, next question. Uh, first, thank you so much for writing this. I think it's gotten a lot of people excited about these very difficult problems. Um, wondering, one, if you had a chance to play the game Kerbal Space Program? Uh, I, I haven't played it, but I know all about it. What is I'm it? Not, uh, uh, Kerbal Space Program. It's a game about getting things into orbit safely and getting them back. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an orbital physics simulator, and you can, do all, you can build your ships, and there's a, a lot of options. Thing is, I don't want to manually control a ship. I, I just, yeah. And then two, like anything else out there that you're seeing that is going to get the next generation of kids excited about solving these problems? Anything that's exciting you now that's on the horizon? Um, I really think uh, we're, we're on the cusp of uh, being able to explore much deeper into the solar system because of ion engines. I think that's the, that's the technology that's in progress right now that's, that's going to be the biggest game changer. Back, if somebody would pass the mic way back there and Mike, do we have any more online yet? Sure. Okay, um, just, yeah, why don't we pass that and give us some online? Question probably a lot of folks have, which is, is would you ever do a sequel to The Martian? Would I ever do a sequel to The Martian? I get asked that. Right, yeah. Uh, so, no. Ba basically, uh, there's, no, there's, there's no idea there. If I ever get an idea for a sequel to The Martian, believe me, I'll, I'll get right on it. I love writing Watney. I love all the characters in it. It was a fun book to write. But it's just, there's, you know, what? You know, oh my God, I'm on the sofa and I'm out of beer and the store is closed. How do I survive? It's like, unless, unless you put Watney in trouble again. Uh, yeah, this is very exciting. Yeah, he's on, he's on board. Um, unless you put Watney in trouble again, it's not that exciting. If you put Watney in trouble again, it's very implausible. And, it's and like, it's oh, can you believe this guy's okay. luck? <laughs> oh, my now God. Now he's stuck in Jupiter now orbit. Now he's <laughs> stuck. The Jovian. Right. Oh. <laughs> so. The Titanian. Right? The Titanian, right. right yeah, yeah the, the Venusian. Yeah, and so you, you end up, you, it ends up either being implausibly unlikely or no longer focused on Watney. Yeah, repetitive. I mean, uh, and a lot of people said like, oh, okay, well, you know, he could be uh, on the ground helping someone else in space. I'm like, well, then the person who's in trouble is the one who's more interesting, not him on the ground. And then you say like, okay, well, why don't you cover the trip home from Mars where they're on a <laughs> ship that's way past its maintenance date and there could be stuff like that. And it'd be just kind of like, eh. 
You know, he's not, he's not by himself on Mars. He's with a competent, skilled crew of five other people. He's not isolated. He has contact with mission control. He's on a ship that's actually designed to last for five entire missions. It's just, there's not enough story there. So, back there, and then we've got a couple more questions up here. Hey, thanks. Um, I enjoyed the book, enjoyed the movie, enjoyed the lecture, and I say that not to be a fanboy, but to say, to preface what might sound otherwise like a somewhat disrespectful question. <laughs> <laughs> we like questions like that. Go for it. Um, your use of the in-situ propellant propulsion, the fully fueled Mars ascent vehicle, the tethered Bolo, at least in your later comments, the um, Mars versus Moon, all this is from Mars Direct, from Zubrin, as you well know. Right. Um, well, not, you, and not all much of it. Yeah. Well, all of it was in it. Maybe it wasn't original to it, but anyway, uh, and the uh, SpaceX mission architectures to Mars are also based on that. And yet you reject, uh, well, let me say, that you embrace certain things that Mars Direct rejects. You embrace space nuclear power ion engines, um, and Mars in 50 years or 40 years from the present. I'm, and the deadly radiation uh, bugaboo. So I'm kind of wondering how you chose to accept certain things and reject other things from a mission architecture that some right. would argue could get us to Mars in the very near future. Sure. Um, so Can Mars you pass Direct. The mic back up, please. So Mars Direct is a very uh, is is was invented in the 1980s, and it was uh, the most advanced and generally accepted method for a good way to get to Mars as of the technology that was available in the 1980s. Um, it's been about 30 years since then, as Marty McFly can tell you, and a lot of the technology is out of date. And I've also never agreed with the notion of having the entire return craft be on the surface of Mars. I think that was sort of a ludicrous idea even in the 1980s. So having, having a, a craft in orbit and then having an ascent vehicle go to that craft and then have that craft come home that's, that's a must. Totally agree. Having nuclear, uh, the, the reason that Mars Direct doesn't use nuclear power, or at least didn't when, when it was uh, originally envisioned, is because we didn't have uh, plausible, uh, re we didn't have any plausible reason to believe that ion engines could be as effective as they actually are back when Zubrin came up with Mars Direct. So basically, all my idea is, is take Mars Direct and update it for stuff that's been invented over the last 30 years. Good answer. Take the question here, Garrett, and you get the last question. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your contribution to popular culture. Uh, You're welcome. Such an amazing addition. Thanks. I have two questions. One is that aren't things that are, uh, it's one thing to wear a big lead blanket when you go to the dental office, but when you're in space, isn't everything irradiated, including the rocks and everything on the surface of other planets? Good That's question. That's one question. The second question is, in the beginning, of your astoundingly accurate and scientific lecture, you said that we were going to rely on a whole bunch of different government entities to propel us into aerospace. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on commercial space and if the advancement of technology as it seems is like, makes every, makes five years into 2.5 years, uh, shouldn't we be in, on Mars a lot sooner than, than you say? Okay, Two good questions. So, uh, I, I lost the thread. What was the first question? Irradiation. Irradiation. Oh, yeah. Won't the okay. spaceship itself become radioactive? Um, 
Not really. So the, the thing is, um, the things that block radiation tend to not become radioactive. And also, if you go to a planet, it's not like the rocks on the planet are radioactive. If you put a big lump of metal out on the surface of the planet and left it there, it would slowly gain some radiation. But it's not like it's being bombarded with a nuclear bomb amount of radiation. It's just way more than is safe for humans to hang around in for months and months. So. The, if, if you had radiation shielding in your base, you wouldn't have any problem going out for like EVAs in unshielded uh, EVA suits, stuff like that. So if your total amount of time spent outside of radiation shielding is a few hours, it, it would be fine. So it's not like you're standing in, next to an unshielded reactor core. It's not, it's not that level. Um, so in terms of commercial space travel, I definitely do believe that commercial is the way forward. I also believe that the first manned mission to Mars will include like all that stuff that we have to put into orbit. I think it'll be contracted. Um, so I think that commercial space uh, flight like um, SpaceX and, and, and other competitors, as long as, Bigelow, as long as there are competitors, will uh, drive the price of putting uh, mass into LEO down. And so when we see that first you know, big manned mission to Mars, it's gonna be like they're gonna contract out the heavy lifting to these, um, to, to these companies, and then the, manned, the, the actual astronauts will go up on some government-run rocket. But if you, if you own a widget factory, you don't then invent trucks to transport widgets around the, the country. You, you hire a trucking company to transport the widgets around the country. And I think that's, that's what, so commercial space flight, space travel is gonna play a huge role in it. Right now, however, the government is the only customer, for the most part, the only customer of space flight. There are private entities that need to have satellites in orbit and stuff like that, but by far, the major money comes from the government, and as long as there's no, like, competition, as long as, as long as the only entities buying it are not necessarily fiscally responsible, it's not gonna be as much of pressure to drive the cost down. Uh, Xander, where are you? Can we take two more quick questions? Yes. Okay, so uh, Garrett, you get to ask your question, and you get to ask your question, and then we'll do the answer. So I think um, we're all very impressed by how realistic it all, it, it, the, the story in particular felt. What are the three things in it that you where you got it wrong, not because of a, well, maybe because of a mistake, but for artistic reasons or for whatever. What are the okay. three most unrealistic things? And let's get the other question. Okay, well, I'll get to that, but we're going to get the other question first, I guess. Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion on... Here's the mic. Oh, sorry. What's your opinion on the importance of and justification of the cost of sterilizing any kind of equipment before it goes on to Mars? Okay. That, Another th interesting th that, that's question. That's a great Good question. question. Okay. Um, so is yours. <laughs> 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 um, so, the three biggest uh, screw-ups in the book, uh, intentional and otherwise, are number one, the sandstorm in the beginning is by far the least physically accurate thing in the book. Uh, Mars's atmosphere is about one half of one percent the density of Earth's atmosphere. So while they do get 150 kilometer an hour winds, the inertia behind them is very, very weak. And so it would have a difficult time knocking over a piece of paper, let alone a 27 ton ascent vehicle. So um, it would feel like, I mean, it would feel like that. It, it's just so, and I knew that at the time, and I had, a different, uh, I had a different disaster in mind that was physically accurate, where they're doing an MAV engine test, and there's an explosion, and all that happens. But it just wasn't as cool. 
And it was a man versus nature story. I wanted nature to get the first punch in. So I was deliberately inaccurate. At the time, most people didn't know that Martian sandstorms were that weak. Now that the Martian has come out, everybody knows. <laughs> so I have inadvertently educated the world on the strength of Martian sandstorms. I feel good about that. Uh, er errors actually are very good as a, yeah, <laughs> as a teaching source, tool. Yeah. yeah. Um, number two, uh, the radiation. I just completely hand-waved it away. Within the context of the Martian, um, they have a thin, light, flexible radiation shielding that just surrounds all of their, like, it, the HAB is radiation shielded, the Hermes is radiation shielded, the rovers are radiation shielded. So he has no problems with radiation at all. It's just, I mention it, so it's not like an oversight, but it's, it's super tech that is inconsistent with the rest of the story, which is all real tech. Uh, the third thing, eh, it's a tie between a few things. Um, stuff that, th there's a whole category of things that have been discovered since I, I published the book that have invalidated things in the book, like finding so much water in the soil, that happened later. Um, the University of Arizona, who controls the high-rise instrument on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, decided to take uh, an extremely detailed photo of the Ares 3 landing site, <laughs> because I say the exact coordinates in the book. So they, they said, like, well, let's see what's there. And they're like, this doesn't look anything like he described it. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, come on, we're, yeah. And then uh, the one other thing, it's minor, but the PLIS, which stands for Portable Life Support System, it's the backpack part of a spacesuit. Um, modern day PLISs, and NASA has just in the past few years invented a method of um, sorting out the CO2 without expendable filters. So just CO2 separation would have been a non-issue for him indefinitely. Interesting answers, okay. Yeah. And Sterilization, now for her. Sterilization. why this is an interesting okay, question. Okay, the planetary protection is, is a policy in place. The idea is we need to sterilize anything we send to Mars, make sure that everything is dead, every little microbe or much, as much as possible so that we don't infect Mars with Earth life for fear that some Earth life might be able to germinate on Mars. We don't even know if there's anything on Earth that can actually live and thrive and reproduce on Mars, but oh, anything on Earth that can live on Mars, right. But, it might be possible. And we don't want to infect Mars with invasive bacteria or something like that, just in case there's actually life on Mars. And if there is, Earth life might subsume it. Kind of like uh, various ecological disasters we've had over the years where you know non-indigenous life is introduced into an area and it just completely displaces or ruins the original ecosystem. Okay, so that's the idea behind planetary protection. And the idea is that they try to sterilize it. I think it's a big waste of time. Okay, so that, that's my opinion. <laughs> okay, and, and I think and it's And why is it a big waste of time? Um, because uh, I have a few reasons why I think it's a big waste of time. First of all, we have landed 12 different things on Mars between us, us, the US, and the Soviets. Okay, and the earlier things that we landed on Mars uh, the, were either weakly, uh, we weakly defended or, or oh, sorry, weakly irradiated or cleared or not at all. Like the Soviets didn't put much effort into it at all. Lip service, if anything. So if, if Mars is gonna be infected by invasive Earth life, it has already happened. Second off, Mars and Earth have been exchanging uh, material for billions of years. I have a Mars meteorite at home. <laughs> it costs a lot of money, but that's what I do with my book earnings. Hey, that's but, a good use. <laughs> I, hey, okay, I, so, 
so I'd buy a Martian yeah. meteor if I could. So the two the two planets have been exchanging have been exchanging material for billions of years, and um, the uh, the probes that we've sent there have already in, infected it. Now let's let the, either one of two things is true: either Earth life is a death sentence to Mars, and just means that it's going like? to completely invasively just ruin whatever biosphere is there, or it's not. And it might be just either absolutely no effect or just a little area of effect right around the probe, like a, like a Petri dish kind of thing, right? So one of those things is true. If it ruins all of Mars, then Mars is already ruined. It's done. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. <laughs> OK, then that means that, OK, well, here's a little area that got ruined. Here's an area that got ruined. Big deal. Big deal. Good. Now, we have discovered the RSLs, recurring slope lineae, on Mars, which are briny patches of liquid water okay, flowing on the surface of Mars. And it happens through a very complicated process of water absorption and, and pressure buildup and then finally flowing. If there is life on Mars today, it will be in that water. Yeah. And now, the nearest RSL uh, to Curiosity, which is an active probe, is about 50 kilometers away. Curiosity could get there in about 200 days. Curiosity's lifespan is beyond that. So in other words, if we made it an opportunity, Curiosity could go look at some liquid flowing water on Mars to find out if there's anything living in it. But planetary protection won't let us. Because they're afraid that Curiosity might have some microbes on it, even though Curiosity underwent full sterilization. So. I think it's a waste of time. Mike, <laughs> do, is there something you really wanted to add? Uh, no, I actually Come. want to give a shout out to Mars Curiosity, whose images were amazing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mars Curiosity. So, some are from will, Curiosity. Will you some all are join me in thanking Andy for what I, I, I don't know about you, but found a thrilling evening. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Sir, yes. For you. Oh, yes, there you go. Yeah, you oh, also wow. get a challenge coin from the Ooh, interval. Cool. Thank you very much thank you. to all of our speakers. And thank you, Peter, for hosting tonight. Really, I loved it. Really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.